What is up, guys? Welcome to the Triage Method podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Paddy, how are you this week? As per usual, I'm positively fantastic. Still quite annoyed that Zoom is fucking us over, but look, mm -hmm. it is what it is. Yeah, it's not fantastic. Um, I imagine considering their their sales or subscriptions or users has probably um, increased tenfold in the last couple of months. They might have hit their limit. I don't know. Irrelevant um, to me as a subscriber. <laughs> I couldn't care less. Imagine yeah. Spotify I've seen other people Netflix. using it. Huh? I've seen other people using it, so I think it's our problem. Nah, it's, it's not. There's a power, there's a, an outage. I looked it up. There's a map of all places that have outages, and it just depends on exactly where you are. And obviously, the Chad Dublin and the Chad Cork are being affected. But look, it is what it is. It's pretty weak. Um, but yeah, for the purpose of today, we're basically going, basically going to be following on uh, from previous podcasts. So uh, everything we discuss in this podcast, you need to have the previous episodes as a prerequisite, you know? Um, so you do need to well, go back. You don't, you don't, but well, you don't necessarily be glossing over everything. <laughs> We're just going to be, it's going to be like glossing over and you're like, wait, what, what does that mean? You know? Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to be talking today <clears throat> with the assumption that you've listened to the last few podcasts on the cardio stuff that we've been covering. Yes, sir. Um, so yeah, look, I, I like people to, to try and achieve that kind of complete understanding because all this stuff just makes so much more sense when you layer each layer on top of the other. Um, otherwise your knowledge will be pretty unstable. So what we're going to be talking about today, once again, um, is blood pressure. And we're going to start off by kind of discussing exercise and its influences on blood pressure. Before we get there, what I would like to do is uh, review and add on some stuff related to, I guess what you could say that is, is the pathophysiology of blood pressure and not necessarily going in depth on that, but kind of giving you some information as to how people do actually develop uh, hypertension or high blood pressure, because I think that can give you a bit a more complete understanding of why we might want to administer exercise interventions, uh, but also nutrition interventions. And obviously, if you were interested in the medicine side of things, it would help to inform, you know, why you do certain drugs, but we won't be discussing that on the podcast. So like, the first thing to, to understand, I suppose, is that, like the number one um, risk factor that's, that's, that's going to contribute to the development of blood pressure is excess body fat you know, is obesity. It, it kind of comes back to it a lot of the time. And it does, it does get a bit repetitive because it can seem quite reductionistic when you're just like, oh, you can't just blame body fat on everything. But the thing is, what you have to understand is that like excess body fat, um, it is, it is somewhat of an end. So you have to also consider the means that get you there. So when we talk about body fat um, or excess body fat, there's both the properties of having the excess body fat in terms of its mechanical effects, because you just carry more weight, there's compression, etc. Um, but also it's uh, biological effects. So the different uh, mediators that it actually secretes into the bloodstream and how that affects your physiology. So that's the, the fat itself. But also, there is the means by which you get there. So in pursuing excess body fat, you could say, you have to basically chronically overconsume calories. So you're overconsuming energy in the diet. You're also very likely in a lot of cases to be consuming those calories from, you know, lots of processed foods, probably quite high um, in salt and sodium, um, probably quite uh, high in sugar, you know, low in fiber, uh, high in saturated fat, you know, a kind of a typical standard American diet, as they call it, um, in the research, you know, if you were to kind of say, like, how do people get to these extremes of obesity, a lot of the time, it, it is through, to some degree, um, an unhealthful diet, like there's not that many people out there that are, you know, gaining body fat, uh, linearly over time, eating, you know, purely, you know, lean meats, uh, plenty of fiber, loads of fruits and vegetables, etc. So um, although it is a generalization, obviously, you guys get what I'm getting at. So that's, that's an important thing to grasp there is that, there's there's all of the the means that get you to the end and there's the end itself and along with that there's other associated behaviors that get you to that point um so for example physical activity or physical inactivity rather so people not exercising people being quite sedentary there's also you know could be uh, sleep deprivation that has been fed into that equation so you know you could be 
chronically sleep deprived that could be modifying your appetite and and your fe- your feeding behaviors and that's contributing to the obesity but it could also be that the obesity is you know compromising your airway and leading to obstructive sleep apnea and that then plays into uh, the development of hypertension as well so point there being guys that when we look at the development of hypertension in a lot of cases it doesn't mean that lean people who exercise can't have high blood pressure they absolutely can but in this case what we're saying is that in a lot of cases where people do develop high blood pressure there's more than just a single thing that's going on you know and um, there's more than just like this one root cause you know people like to talk about root causes and addressing root causes but very often we're talking about a, a wide variety of factors that all kind of convene on the creation of this this uh, high blood pressure so that's the just on that go ahead i want to also say because this also especially in the the fitness side of the health and fitness realm people always um like make a lot of hyperbole with with regards to this and what i mean by that is they're like oh like body fat that's the issue and when they think of body fat they're not thinking of like obesity or you know we'll call it pre-obesity like you're you're, you're on the edge of obesity yeah. they're like oh body fat like above 12 percent body fat like if you don't have absolutely shredded abs like that's that's not what we're talking about here. Yeah. You know, we're talking about like an excess above, we'll call it the, the general accepted normal or general accepted uh, healthy range of body fat, right? So again, I, I don't have exact numbers. I could be like, once you get past this percentage body yeah. fat, like I think that's, I don't think that's helpful. You know, what I do think is helpful is not thinking about the body fat itself, right? To start this this whole process. Even though you might be like, the body fat is a real contributor to all of this stuff. What you should think of instead of just the, the body fat itself, think of the habits that got you to that body fat or think of the habits that would lead someone to even being at that body fat level, but also having a healthy blood pressure, right? Because that's entirely possible, yeah. right? And like, I think focusing on the habits, focusing on we'll call them healthy habits, if you want, like that's the most important thing you can take away from any discussion of health and fitness. Like again, like I don't care if you are fifty percent body fat, if your blood pressure is great, if your blood glucose levels are great, like if all the markers are on point and you're like, yeah, I can actually fucking run a ten kilometer, you know, go for a ten kilometer ten kilometer jog, and it's not an issue to me. Like you are genuinely healthy, and I'm like that's cool. Like, no, like your body fat isn't contributing to ill health. However, if you are saying, oh yeah, like it's all, it's all good. Like body fat is irrelevant. Um, it it shouldn't be thought of, like I shouldn't go to my doctor and they shouldn't mention it. Um, then like you're missing the forest for the trees. It is a contributing factor. And again, it is more beneficial to think of the habits that lead to that. However, we have to factor that in, especially if we consider that you have a higher level of body fat, but don't engage in these healthy habits. And while you might be, we'll call it free of disease now, that doesn't mean that you're not on like a faster track towards disease because you don't engage in these healthy habits, you know? So again, while I think it is much more beneficial to think of in terms of the habits that you engage in, like, do you engage in healthful habits, you know? And unfortunately, like we've talked about before, this is not a a pick and choose menu. It's like, you have to kind of engage in, in all of these healthful habits. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to start at that position and go like, you have to do a complete overhaul. And if you don't do everything, you might as well not even try. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is like, you can't just go gung-ho with one thing and then not the other things. They have to at least be looked at or touched on just a, a slight bit. And what I mean by that is like, you can't just be like, oh, I do a load of uh, you know exercise, so I'm good, but your diet is like awful like it, it, they have to all of the things have to be looked at rather than just going oh yeah look that's fine you know um but anyway that's what i just wanted to say yeah no that is really important because that's probably one of the areas where there's a lot of conflict between people who are trying to get out a clear message about maybe the the downsides of obesity online and people from within the health at health at every size movement is that you know the the, the thing to understand is not that right obesity does not matter or obesity is responsible for all of your ills like the case is that if you were to think of blood pressure and you were to look at the cutoff at which people are diagnosed with hypertension and you were to take a sample of people in the normal bmi range um 
and you were to take a sample of people that would be classified as as obese, obviously, again, issues with BMI, but in general, we're just saying higher body fat versus lower body fat. What you would see is that a higher proportion of those in the sample with elevated with excess body fat are going to have or be across that threshold for hypertension, whereas a greater proportion um, of those in the normal range basically aren't. So we're talking about a spectrum here, and we're talking about um, kind of you know probability and 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 change over time. So if you are you know overweight now and you're carrying excess body fat and your blood pressure is normal, like you said, it does still increase your risk for the development of these complications in the future. And that has been uh, teased out like quite a bit, I think from the the UK's biobank database, like the, it's a like big database um, of, of, of research that's used uh, for these types of things. And what you see is that over the course of, of a 10 year period, when you actually follow those people who would be classified as, you know, metabolically healthy, um, obese. So, you know, they're in that they're cl- classified as obese, but their metabolic health markers appear to be okay. You do have a higher risk of going on to develop those, those complications over the course of 10 years. So we're absolutely not saying that, you know, all right, body fat is, is, is absolutely going to cause your health problems. But we are saying that there is an increased probability of those things developing and yeah. hypertension and, does fall into And that. as we said in the last episode, um, like this is not just for, you know, quote unquote, obese people. Like you yeah. see this all the time in otherwise healthy. Oh, I'm a resistance trained individual, a male, you know, so I'm like, oh, it's fine. Uh, but you're on this like dreamer bulk and you are carrying around 20, 30 kilos of excess yeah. body fat. And you're like, that's oh, fine. Cause I do powerlifting or it's fine. Cause I'm just, you know, bulky and I'm going to cut down next summer, you know, and that's always, it's always next summer. It's never actually, yeah. never actually happens. Um, you know what I mean? It's like, like just because you engage, like I said, on, in some of these healthful habits that, you know, are potentially, you know, blood pressure protective, if you want to think of it like that, that doesn't mean that you are in a good position you know, like, again, it's, it's, you have to look at everything, you know? Yeah. And, and, and then like, when we start, when we're talking about obesity, then you kind of do have to, you know, consider like, what, what are the different, the different pathways by which someone can go from right excess body fat to the development uh, of hypertension. And some of those things, as I said, right, they're purely kind of mechanical things you could say, because if you have all of this uh, body fat that's that's built up everywhere in your body it also occurs around your organs and one of the organs around which body fat can build up is your kidneys so that's called perirenal adipose tissue and basically what happens there um if you were to look up like the anatomy of the kidney and the different kind of compartments around that if you've got a build up of, of body fat around that kidney like the result of that is that that kidney is compressed and that changes its properties and one of the things that happens there is you get um in, impaired natriuresis which is basically just the ability to get sodium out of the body so if you're not able to get sodium out of the body you get greater sodium retention and that then contributes to the development um, of hypertension so that's like a purely mechanical effect you know so you can see there that okay uh this seems like uh if we lose that body fat that's going to decrease the things that are mediating those changes and that seems to be the case you know so that's one of the things that could be happening another thing that could, just just on that before you go on like there is obviously a lot of genetic variability in, in terms of this like there's going to be individuals that can be like oh yeah i'm actually at 50 percent body fat and I just don't really seem to store it around my kidneys. So these are not impacted, right? There's also like obviously a, a huge amount of variation in the actual, you know, kidneys efficiency themselves. If you want to think of that, yes. like I know a guy, like he, he has four kidneys, um, like just, and also his daughter, his daughter also has four kidneys. So it's obviously in his germline as well. So that's, that's pretty cool. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, so if you're just born with four kidneys, like obviously that's a difference in someone who's just born with a normal amount of kidneys, you know? So, so it's like, that, like there is genetic variation. And I know everyone always likes to think like, oh, like we're all the same or whatever. Like it, fundamentally it's, it's not correct. Like we're all dealt different hands. Like, yeah, it would be nice if we were all just insured, you know, equality of outcome. But unfortunately I'm not going to have the same equality of outcome as this guy that has four kidneys. You know, if we're talking about, you know, our risks or our potential, you know, whatever with regards to blood pressure. Like, I don't actually know, like maybe that increases his risk of higher blood pressure, you know, like it's very, it's possible, you know, um, I don't know. <laughs> um, so again, like I do want to just point out that you can't really compare across like your friend group or anything like that when you're talking about this stuff, because there is quite a lot of genetic variation. So 
if you have high blood pressure and you're like, well, I, I don't have this excess body fat, you know, so, you know, whatever. And your friend over here has a lot of excess body fat and doesn't have high blood pressure. Again, there there is variation between individuals. So you can't just be like, well, life is unfair. Yeah, life is unfair. And again, that's unfair. But all you're left to do with that is, you know, take the responsibility for what you can take responsibility for. It's not your fault, you know, but it is your responsibility. Yep, 100%. Couldn't agree more. Um, so yeah, no, that is actually a really important point related to the genetic factors because like, I don't, I don't think people kind of appreciate like how much like genetic variation there actually can be in just so many different things that it will be very difficult to map out even like the, the paths of causality between all these different changes, you know, um, you can have, you can have genetic factors that change the expression of, of different proteins within the kidney that then, you know, change your ability to deal with uh, potassium and sodium and electrolytes and change the balance of those things. So all those things do go on. You can also have, you know, renal artery stenosis, which means that you basically got a narrowing um, of the, the vessel running into the kidney. And that then changes everything that's going on within the kidney and can, can give you high blood pressure. So there's a lot of, there's a, there are a lot of things that, that do vary within this. And, and that, that was, that was kind of the kidney, the kidney stuff. What you've also got there, I said, you know, fat tissue around the organs, you know, visceral adipose tissue in general. So if you've got, if you're the person that stores a lot of fat around your midsection, and this is kind of really what, why, why people would try and make the distinction between um, body fatness and, and where the location of the body fat is and just BMI, because you could have two people with the same BMI, but you know, as, as is, as is often the case in females, you could have someone who has uh, more body fat distributed in, let's say the legs, the thighs, um, the buttock region, but not so much in the abdomen. And that's actually a, a healthier position to be in, in general, than the person, again, it's kind of your typical, your typical male or many males who, you know, they might have skinny legs, they might have skinny arms, you know, their shoulders are quite skinny. But what you've got then is this kind of big midsection, this big, you know, swollen belly, um, supposedly, basically, because they're storing a lot of their body fat around that region in the abdomen. And when you start to develop that, that's actually far worse for your health than storing body fat elsewhere. And this also plays into to the development of, of hypertension. And in particular, like when you're starting to talk about fat around around the, the liver and the pancreas, um, there are two organs in particular that tend to be um, affected by this. So what's going to happen in that case where you've got all that body fat around your midsection is that then contributes to things like insulin resistance and higher levels of inflammation in the body. And those things that those things then feed into um, changes within the vasculature. So within your blood vessels, you can have, you know, greater vasoconstriction. So constriction of the blood vessels, and um, you can have inflammation within the blood vessels, you can get, you know, greater increases in stiffness within the blood vessels. So all these things are kind of acting together. So you can see there that there's some link there between the presence of excess body fat and insulin resistance. And you can see that as being a potential point of intervention for exercise right there. So, you know, if you're thinking of exercise, exercise increases um, one's insulin sensitivity or glucose tolerance independent um, of body fat. So you can still, you know, increase your ability to take up glucose um, just by exercising itself. So that's kind of going along with, with your point, Patty, is that someone can have excess body fat and start to take up these more healthful behaviors and have improvements in these markers without actually losing body fat itself. So this is kind of why it's important to, to start to remember that, that there is more to it. You know, the, the body fat, it also applies to your blood vessels and other organs. So you can have uh, body fat or adipose tissue that's located around your blood vessels. And that also has signaling properties because again, coming back to that point that I mentioned at the beginning, body fat is not just like an inert an earth blob of lard you know it is secreting um its own you know inflammatory mediators and, and hormones you could say so that that is important to realize and that affects everything else that's going on so overall what you have to realize is that there is that obesity gives us a lens through which we can start to look at the development of hypertension and as we said in the last episode of the podcast a lot of these these changes tend to to take place as a result of increased activity of the sympathetic nervous system so that's the kind of stress response the fight or flight part of the autonomic nervous system um, and the renin and 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 angiotensin aldosterone system or the ras system again which is heavily related to the kidneys blood volume blood pressure regulation etc and again all susceptible to genetic factors dietary factors exercise body fat etc so lots of different things going on there 
Yes, I have nothing else to add to that, Gary. Well, I suppose I do. That is also why you see this sex difference generally in re regard to blood pressure, where they're like, oh, men need to look out for this uh, more. Now, that was traditionally the case. However, now women are really coming close to getting similar numbers in terms of uh, cardiovascular health complications as men. So that isn't as much of a dis distinguishing you know thing anymore you know um but i do want to say that again like women like you're absolute savages in terms of the fact that you can actually have way higher body fat levels and still be healthy than guys right again if you just equate the two like uh, a male at 20 percent body fat and a female at 20 percent body fat like a female is going to be healthier like again just from the perspective of body fat like obviously there's thousands and millions of other things that go into uh, parsing out the exact healthiness of an individual but i'm just saying from a body fat perspective you can get away with so much more than men can right because again generally again well, whenever we talk generalities it's obviously not the case for everyone um but generally women tend to store their body fat in again more favorable positions you know, like in terms of their legs and like their boobs and stuff you know and um, so even from like oh. a we'll call it an aesthetic point of view it's like it's a more favorable body fat you know distribution but also it's a more favorable body fat distribution in terms of health right because again like Again, you can call it the, that gynoid fat distribution pattern and then, again, that android fat distribution pattern. Um, but, yeah, storing a lot of body fat on your midsection and viscerally inside your, your midsection, like, that's not, it's not ideal, you know? Um, so men are at a, a distinct disadvantage here, which is also quite funny because we've talked about it before, but you see on social media people that like basically males and females that have gynoid fat distributions get uh more likes or whatever you want to call it yeah. more social proof because uh I, I don't know again like if you can be 20 percent body fat and you still have shredded abs as a guy it's like okay like that's that's very handy for taking a few sneaky instagram pictures you know um and same as a female if you just have this favorable fat distribution where it all goes to your your ass and your boobs it's like Again, that's that's going to be validated on social media, you know. But that Android uh, fat distribution, where you basically have this beer belly, yeah, that doesn't really get those uh, social media likes. Yeah, it's bad vibes, man. <laughs> but yeah, all of that, all of that pretty much does bring us bring us on to uh, our discussion of exercise. Because when we start to talk about exercise, what you'll see is that it does kind of fit into some of the causal pathways that we were kind of that we were discussing um, and again i just think that you know looking at the the link between obesity and hypertension it's kind of illustrative of, of a lot of, of the things that are going on but to just reinforce the point that you can absolutely have hypertension without having excess body fat because there are other variables at play so exercise and blood pressure okay so like one of the one of the things that i i kind of found really interesting when i when i was reading about this was that like this, this is not a new, a new area of research or a new area of interest. When we talk about exercise and blood pressure, there was a guy called Dr. Dr. Gordon of the Royal Infirmary Hospital in, in, in Edinburgh, in, in, I was going to say in Glasgow, in Scotland rather. Um, but back at, back in 1906, basically this guy, what he did, he had the opportunity to uh, measure the blood pressure response in this, uh, this guy, I think his name was Tom Burroughs and he played the, or he played, he, he performed with the Indian clubs and he was like the Australian champion in like the late 1800s and stuff. And this guy had the opportunity then to go and basically measure his blood, blood pressure response. And this type of activity would be classified as kind of a low, a low level endurance type activity because it's kind of like, you know, the heart rate's elevated, you're doing a bit of work, but it's kind of constant. And he was doing this for 12 hours. And when he measured this, what he found was that you know, the, the blood pressure response appeared to be kind of quite consistent throughout all that, that activity. And one of, one of his observations was that he was contrasting that with uh, blood pressure responses that were taken previously um, in a rugby match between, I think, was our, I think Ireland and Scotland, Scotland were playing and they measured the, the blood pressure responses before and after the game, these two, these two uh, different players. And what he found was that, oh, there seems to be this difference between what's going on during this activity in, in rugby players and after the activity in rugby players versus this Indian clubsman. And the interesting finding there that, that he was kind of reflecting on was that 
they're seeing this this acute change in blood pressure that we're seeing during activity it seems to vary you know between different activities and it seems to change after so what he was seeing was that you know the blood pressure response after the exercise was changing and he was kind of thinking at the time he was like could we use this to uh, predict uh, responses to exercise or rather recovery from exercise and you know it's funny because I think it's only probably in the last 10 to 20 years that 10 years even seen a lot of personal trainers trying to kind of adopt that as a a measurement of you know it could we use this to measure recovery if someone's blood pressure is high etc and obviously that was done before but it just kind of shows you that interest in 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 this topic has been around for a while so the the thing the thing there from dr gordon that i would take away and that i would i would kind of keep in my mind is that the difference between like there is a difference between what happens acutely and what happens chronically and we can extend that out over a longer period of time and basically look at how that applies between resistance training um, and aerobic training or endurance training or whatever you prefer to call it. So the the, the point that we noted in the previous episode of the podcast um, was that during and, and the previous episode before that was that during resistance training, what we see is this massive increase in pressure. So we said that that related to the changes that occur within the heart itself. So the, the, we said that the left ventricular wall, that it was kind of, you know, it was thickened by resistance training, that it was this concentric hypertrophy, hypertrophy pattern. That was the result of resistance training because what we have is we have this increase in afterload during resistance training. So we get an increase in resistance against which the the heart basically has to contract to pump out the blood. Whereas when we look at uh, endurance training or continuous training, we more so get this kind of continuous flow of blood and we get an increase in volume that's going through the heart. And that led to this kind of dilated pattern within the heart where the heart is, it's hypertrophied, but it's an eccentric pattern. So it's increasing the volume of the chamber. So they were the kind of the, the gross observations that we made in terms of the difference between aerobic and endurance training. And then when we think about how this applies to blood pressure specifically, one of the things that's really interesting is that, you know, if we say, if we go back to kind of Dr. Gordon's observation, what he was observing there was that this, what we see during endurance type exercise or continuous exercise is that, you know, blood pressure is kind of continuous throughout that activity. Or, you know, in some cases, it might start to drop as someone becomes dehydrated, you know, their, their, their total blood volume is reducing you could see a reduction in blood pressure. And, you know, if you were to take someone's blood pressure after a marathon, it might actually be down uh, as a result of the, the fluid losses that they've actually had. So that's an interesting thing is that, right, it's kind of this continuous thing. Um, whereas when we, look at, when we look at resistance training, you can see blood pressures that are terrifyingly high when you see them on paper or when you see them on your blood pressure monitor you know the in in there was a study in 19, 1985 I, I haven't seen any larger number than this since but the largest number recorded during during exercise during resistance training was someone doing a leg press and their blood pressure had increased to 480 over 350 i think so when you measure that you're like oh fuck you know if you go into an emergency room and your blood pressure is like 180 or over 180 you're kind of looking at like you know what this is like a hypertensive crisis like this is this is not good but during exercise we see numbers that are like double that you know so they're really really large numbers and, and this is the thing like you can actually just visualize this as well yeah. like you can imagine like visually seeing someone going for a nice little jog and like they're just maybe a little light sweat on their face you know it's, it's fine like they look they look great they look like a normal human being and then you see someone in the gym on i don't know a leg press or under a squat and they're literally <clears throat> face is completely purple neck veins bulging out of them you know they're like their entire body is just gone fucking red from having that such high blood pressure and like every single vein and artery in their body you can fucking see under the skin basically as like visually you can just see the difference right so again you can understand why people inherently think like oh that resistance training get your get your blood pressure high it does yeah 100 percent. and like and like that is the thing that again the reason i wanted to bring up that that kind of observation from 1906 is that you know he was kind of observing that at the time whereas a lot of the time if you were to speak to people today you know even personal trainers about you know blood pressure during resistance training they might still think oh i you know I don't know about that. Does that contribute to, to high blood pressure? And, you know, I've seen a lot of people say that, that, you know, when you engage in resistance training, um, it leads to increases in blood pressure. But that's not actually the case longer term. So that's, that's the interesting part of this is that although we do see 
these ridiculous increases in blood pressure, although you'll see someone's eyes popping out of their head, it's counterintuitive, but it does lead to actually a reduction in blood pressure. And the thing is, like what you might say, what you might say is that, okay, you know, resistance training can potentially reduce blood pressure, but obviously, like aerobic training is just far superior. And like it's just not as not that clear that that is actually the case. You know, I think like if I was to if I was to really, you know, like point, point my flag somewhere in the sand, like what's my actual, what's my actual perspective? If I had to guess, like, I probably would say that like aerobic training might take the edge um, because I think there are some differences in terms of how resistance training is applied in the real world and the behaviors that go along with that versus um, aerobic training and the behaviors that go along with that. So I think, I think in the real world, if we were to look at, um, the trajectory of a powerlifter over their lifetime versus the trajectory of a marathon run over their lifetime, you would see higher blood pressure in the powerlifter. Um, and that could be secondary to, you know, things like performance enhancing drugs. But I don't think it's fair to say that that's exclusive to that either, because, you know, you could have cyclists and they're taking EPO um, and that can lead to an increase in, in blood viscosity and blood, blood pressure as well. So, you know, it's not unique to strength sports, but when we start to think about like, you know, your average powerlifter versus your average endurance trainee, I would say that over time, it probably is more likely that engaging in that activity and the behaviors that come with it are more likely to lead to, to higher blood pressure. And you do see that when, when, when you kind of look at cross-sectional studies. So cross-sectional study is basically where you're taking samples at a specific point in time and saying, what are their features? You do see endurance trainees displaying um, lower blood pressures than weightlifters. But again, I, I don't think you can exactly say that it's purely the resistance training and associated ad adaptations and not related to, you know, the pursuit of weight gain over time of overconsumption of calories of, you know, different dietary quality, etc. So, so yeah. also, just as we said at the start of this, <clears throat> Like you can't compare across individuals with this stuff. Like no. it's it's extremely hard to do because again, like your man over here, the weightlifter might have four kidneys. You just you don't know, you know. So again, like there's genetic variability. The only thing that really matters at the end of the day, especially if you're listening to this and you're like, like what what the fuck should I do? What should I be focusing on? I want to be I want to be healthy. I want to have normal blood pressure. You need to engage in activities, whether that's resistance training, cardiovascular training fucking somersaults i don't know whatever the fuck it is that you know gets you going but you should be able to see a change in your blood pressure over time in a favorable direction you know and what i mean by that is yeah. if it's high now you want to engage in activities that get it to a level that's healthy you know now obviously there are going to be changes across your lifetime that may be less than favorable you know i like i don't see most people having the most robust perfect blood pressure when they're you know 90 years old but again we want to be looking at uh, engaging in habits that lead us to being in the best healthful position like i think all this trying to compare across groups and being like oh well well like what about this this uh, subsection of individuals here have a uh, you know low blood pressure or what's we'll say normal blood pressure and ideal blood pressure and this group over here have like high blood pressure like unless you know what every single individual in those groups like like we're not looking at an average when we're talking about individuals you know like unless you can see every single individual and then also know all of the habits of all the individuals like what are you actually comparing you're just trying to get some sort of correlation you know like but that's not that's not what you want at an individual level you just want to know what you as an individual can do to get better results you know and the great thing about blood pressure and quite a lot of stuff that you know we talk about in this whole health and fitness sphere is there are more immediate feedback uh markers that you can look at like you can literally just measure your blood pressure you know do it like every sunday just keep it standardized and just be like yeah i'm just going to measure it every sunday you know i, I got it measured in the, the the doctor and it was high like we were talking about the other day that's not necessarily something that you need to be concerned about but maybe like go out to you know your local store and you buy this cheap blood pressure cuff and just be like right i'm gonna just keep an eye on it for the next two or three weeks see where it's at and then all of a sudden you notice it's like oh i actually took up a bit of a walking didn't nothing extraordinary but all i've been doing is focusing on getting my ten thousand steps per day and oh my blood pressure has dramatically you know benefited awesome that's all you need to do like it's not it's not hard 
you just need to do something that gets it moving in a favorable direction. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that is like, that is like one of the, the take home points at the end of this podcast that like you just need to take with you um, is that particularly like the, the thing is these, these types of conversations, I think we're almost conditioned to have because we're always talking about things that are like real difficult to predict and measure like hypertrophy, you know, like in the fitness industry, people are often trying to see, you know, what is the optimal approach to building muscle? And in some cases, they're like, you can actually have productive conversations about that stuff. Because if you're to look at a four week study, you just often can't measure, you know, reliably changes in muscle mass over that time. And often you're looking at surrogate markers and stuff like that. Whereas when you look at exercise interventions um, for blood pressure, like four weeks, boom, you see changes, you know, you see changes, you see differences, you know, you can even measure, you know, the surrogate markers or the the changes in like the blood vessel compliance and stuff like that, that might've played into that change. So it is a bit of a different thing. And you actually have a, a way that is a bit more objective of trying to measure blood pressure over time and seeing how things, you know, are going for you. And not only that, you also have a professional, you know, a doctor, your GP that you can see regularly um, to if you are trying to deal with this, this blood pressure problem. So it is it is a bit of a different conversation to um, something like, am I building muscle or not? Uh, yeah, it's more like uh, getting stronger. You know, it's more yeah. like that kind of adaptation, because, you know, after four weeks, you can assess, well, am I stronger than I was four weeks ago? Okay, yeah, I've actually added five kilos, so I'm, I'm stronger. You know, it's not like, Hmm. I actually think I, I, you know, maybe there's a gram of muscle that I, I built. Like, how, like, how do you even measure that? Yeah, and it's even and it's even better because, it, like, with with strength, it, you you get to a point eventually where you're like, oh man, if I could gain two point five kilos on my four hundred uh, kilo bench press, just well for me and you anyway, you know, if I could gain another two point five kilos on that four hundred kilo bench press, I would be pumped. Whereas no one gets to like. 115 over 75 under blood pressure and they're like i want to see if i can hit 90 over 60 you know <laughs> my long-term goal so you can measure these things and eventually like once you get into the healthy range it's like cool man well well done continue with your life completed um, it yeah done so so yeah like to get to get kind of get back to just just a little bit of discussion on on the aerobic versus resistance training stuff like like the the intuition like kind of conventional wisdom would, would kind of have you think that right you know cardio is cardio so obviously that's just far better for reducing blood pressure but when you actually look at the research like it's definitely a lot more uncertain because you know if you were to look at some of the evidence you could even like some of the evidence does show that like resistance training um comes out on top comes out superior which is quite surprising for some people um and in some cases you could actually say that resistance training might actually be better in the real world than it is in these studies because what you're looking at sometimes is theraband interventions and they call them resistance training you know so you're looking at the exercises where people are using very light resistance bands um and 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 these are new, and a lot of the time you're looking at new trainees and stuff and you're saying that these are the adaptations that we get out of this that this is actually resistance training whereas what you then see in like which is which is very interesting is isometric resistance training is actually the most potent intervention for reducing blood pressure out of aerobic training and dynamic resistance training and what i mean is that isometric resistance training what they often use is like a an, an isometric dynamometer like a hand a hand grip dynamometer so it's basically one of those things that you squeeze and you just squeeze as hard as you can and that that contraction that kind of you know you're basically just contracting you're keeping the muscle the same length but you're putting out maximum force that that leads to a very potent reductions um in blood pressure and the thing that i think is somewhat unanswered there and that i find interesting is that there's actually probably a lot more of of that um of that feature of isometric resistance training in real world um resistance training interventions than is accounted for in a lot of the intervention studies because if you think about uh doing a deadlift a deadlift is a dynamic exercise in that you are obviously you're moving your knee joints you're moving your hip joints etc but it's also heavily isometric in that all of your trunk muscles you know like your your abdominal muscle your lower back etc and all of your forearm muscles and arm muscles like they're basically doing the exact same thing as um as is the hand grip dynamometer in those isometric grip training studies so like i'm not i'm not saying that 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 is the case it could be the case that doing 
sets of five sets of three deadlifts is actually worse for your blood pressure for some reason um because maybe the the pressure gets so high that you get in endothelial damage or something like that like the 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 point there being that i don't know but you could make a sound case for resistance training being superior or at least the same and if you were to say that aerobic training is definitely far far superior I definitely don't think you can make that case based on the evidence that there that that is there. Just just on this, what I want to do is also just say that the the waters are extremely muddied as well, right? And the reason being that, like generally, you'll see people fall into either camp, right? They'll either be like, "I do resistance training," or "I do endurance training," or aerobic training, or whatever the fuck you want to call it. And like. If you start introducing something that the individual has not been doing, of course, they're going yeah. to get adaptations. Like if you're a resistance trainee and you've been all you've ever been doing is, you know, triples on fucking the, the tree power lifts. And you're like, that's you know, that's all I ever I've ever done, you know, and then we bring in some conditioning work. Like, of course, you're going to see adaptations. You know, yeah, that could just make it look like, oh, man, like th- the cardio that we brought in, like that dramatically dropped your your blood pressure. You're now in a fucking extraordinarily healthy position you know and be like yeah aerobic training is the bee's knees for blood pressure you can see why someone would think that you know but that's not necessarily the case with the actual intervention itself as a a generality you know like you could also see the exact opposite happen where someone has been engaging in you know endurance training and then they take up strength training and then they also see a robust change in their blood pressure now it's less likely to be the case that way but that's purely because the other habits and behaviors individuals who do like aerobic training engage in are probably more conducive to better blood pressure and what i mean by that is like if you're running marathons you're generally not going to be 40 kilos overweight you know whereas if you're like yeah i just i do resistance training you could easily get 40 kilos overweight and be like, yeah, it's just it's for strength, you know? So again, we, we can't look at these things in isolation and then we can't just attribute the adaptations to a, a certain modality as being like generalized. We have to look at the the individual uh, that we're actually bringing that, that adaptation to and trying to elicit that adaptation in um, because again, what have they been doing previous to that? Yeah. We, we have to factor that in. Yeah, no, that's that's that is one hundred percent the case, and an important clarification because, like, what I'm essentially doing, like, when I'm discussing those bits that I just was, is like I'm taking this real like high twenty thousand foot view, like, and saying, right, these are the things that might be at play between group from different groups and stuff. And what you're saying is that, right, cool, but as a trainer, as a doctor, as a nutritionist, we don't work with groups; we work with individuals. So all that you care about is right. What affects this individual at this point in time? And that is really important because you know, as you do, as you do look into like population differences and stuff, there do pop up these kind of unanswered questions. You know, for example, there's differences in in blood pressure responses to exercise um, in elderly individuals versus younger individuals. And um, one of the reasons being that you know, if you're an elderly individual, and as per our discussion in the last podcast, you have increases in arterial stiffness over time, age-related changes, then that might render you maybe less responsive to the exercise intervention um, when it is applied. And, And that does seem to be the case in some research. But again, when you do look into all this stuff, like the different exercise interventions, different populations, different other other contextual factors, like whether or not someone um, is, if, if diet is controlled in the study, if weight loss is controlled in the study, if sodium restriction is part of that diet change, basically what you see is that all of these different variables modify the response and that's then going to vary on the individual that's actually in front of you. So with all of that said, like we will tease out obviously far more to specifics in our actual writing on this topic because it's actually better to to look at this from a writing perspective but for the purpose of this podcast what i would take away is that resistance training and aerobic training both appear to be independently beneficial in that you can use one or the other um, and improve your blood pressure but what what we like to do at triage obviously is never look at these things in a vacuum and as per all of our previous cardiovascular discussions we don't recommend that you do either of those things independently anyway. <laughs> like we're going to tell you to do resistance training and aerobic training. So you needn't even waste your time on thinking, which should I do? Because we want you to do both because it goes far beyond just the blood pressure. Um, and both seem to be uh, superior for longer, longer term health anyway. So yeah, and if you go back to that cardio for the heart, I, I can't remember which yeah. one, the actual applic- applic- applicable um, episode where we were basically saying like, 
do some resistance training, maybe do some like conditioning work after or at some other stage, like we'll call it higher intensity stuff um, at other stage, then at least hit your 10,000 steps, like a few walks, you get a lot of the aerobic, you know, adaptations. And then if you're like, all right, you know, I want to push this a little bit, then bring in some like specific uh, aerobic, you know, sessions. Like again, like what we said in the last one, I was like, you could go for a longer walk that, you know, maybe it's a little bit more intense of a walk, maybe it's up the mountains or something on the weekend, you know, like the, to get aerobic adaptations, like you don't even need to push that hard. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's, you literally need to keep your heart rate over like 120, we'll say. And that's just not hard to do for an hour. Like, yeah, you will be sweating. Yeah, it will be, you know, uh, it takes an hour out of your day or whatever. But it's just not hard to get those adaptations, especially in in the background of just generally higher activity levels, like just getting in your walks and stuff. Now, again, I know in like Ireland, um, it's always pissing rain. So that can be extremely hard. But again, you just have to come up with protocols that allow you as an individual to get your activity where it needs to be. And then again, that might be you wake up in the morning and you have to go to the gym and do 30 minutes on a cross trainer or whatever it is, you know, when the gyms are open. Um, 30 minutes on the cross trainer or whatever it is, because you know you are living a very sedentary life and you just can't get your activity in otherwise. Again, that might be the, the modality you need to do. Again, they're all the specifics. What you really need to think about is, especially from the context of what we're providing here, is the generalities of what you should be thinking of. You need to get some aerobic work done. We could even say you need to get some anaerobic work done. Again, to an extent, you get that covered with resistance training. But I think it is a good idea to have that kind of, we'll call it mixed modal uh, cardiovascular work sometime throughout your week, you know, and then also just do some resistance training. Like, don't don't have this either or mentality. Just be a, an all-rounder. Yes, sir. Absolutely. And I suppose the thing the thing then to add on to all of that would be that, right, we know that, you know, all modes of exercise appear to be useful and that we would encourage you to do, you know, both conditioning training or aerobic training and your resistance training. You know, you can also say that doing high intensity interval training and continuous uh, cardiovascular training, both beneficial both seem to be relatively equal um from from the perspective of their their effects on blood pressure i think you do have to be like i think there is some uncertainty in terms of the high intensity uh, interval training because when you do look at the uh the research on this like what you see is that they compare you know again we're looking at this kind of ten thousand foot view of lots of different studies that have used these interventions but one of the things with high intensity interval training that you have to take into account is that when you look at the research on this topic in, in hypertensive individuals, people who do have high blood pressure, a lot of them are already on um, medications. And some of those medications, you know, such as beta blockers, um, do reduce maximum exercise capacity to some degree. So if you're talking about a high intensity, high intensity interval intervention, I wouldn't be 100% confident, you know, that that relates directly to the high intensity interval sessions, you know, me or you might do Patty. So and also, like high intensity intervals is such a wishy washy term. Yeah, like it's not 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds. What's the rest period? Like, like there's, it's, it's a, a very bastard. Like people will say, oh, I'm doing a, a high intensity interval training session and it's 20 minutes long or 40 minutes long. You're like, you just can't hold that high intensity for that long. Unless of course your, your rest periods are, you know, quite long where people are like, no, 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 I do like, you know, 30 seconds on 30 seconds off. I'm like, it's just not high intensity. There's you're basically just doing aerobic training. Yeah. hundred percent. So like that, that's, that's kind of the point of bringing that up is that like when you're actually looking at the differences in, in these interventions in the research, it, it's like, ah, these are probably more similar than they are different, you know, because it's like 30 seconds on 30 seconds off. And it's like, yeah, so someone's probably getting up to 150, 160, maybe coming down to 120, 130, going back up. And it's like, I'm not sure that's all that different to just doing, you know, continuous at 140 to 150 beats per minute or whatever. So yeah, it might be more fun and it might make yeah. you stay with it. That's that's perfectly fine. Like again, but we shouldn't be talking about physiological adaptations then. That's more of a, a psychological thing. 100%. So point there being, look, all exercise is beneficial uh, for your blood pressure. It would be wise to do some exercise. Uh, more seems to be better in a lot of cases. That doesn't mean you have to lift weights for 15 hours a week, but you know, more does seem to, to seem to be better in, in a lot of cases. But what you have to realize there is that a lot of these interventions you're looking at, did they do one set 
uh, one set uh, three times per week or did they do three sets three times per week so um we people who are already into training you might meet the tr- the threshold of where the benefits begin to basically deplete they're just you're not getting any more any more benefits we might get there sooner uh, than someone who doesn't train obviously so uh, that would be m- my basic conclusion there both types of exercise um are really beneficial would advise and then the, the the final thing to touch on there is you know how how beneficial are they and 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 the thing is like we're not just looking at you know very trivial decrease tri- decreases in blood pressure i feel like my speech is compromised today <laughs> rather what you do see is like in in some of the more recent research in terms of analyzing lots and lots and lots of different studies is that exercise can basically give you similar benefits to lots of the commonly prescribed medications for high blood pressure. So that might seem surprising because it's like, oh, well, obviously, if they're drugs, they're going to be really, really potent. Um, Whereas, you know, exercise just also seems to be really, really potent. And that doesn't mean that that's, again, caveat, doesn't mean that as an individual, that exercise is going to work for you to get you to a, a healthy blood pressure range. Because what you have to realize here is that, you know, people have different levels of resistance in terms of uh, how reversible their hypertension is. So some one person could be started on one medication, whereas another person, which could depend on their age, their ethnicity, etc., they might actually be starting on a, a different medication or combination of medications. And that all depends on what stage of high blood pressure you actually have in the first place. So the point there being that, you know, that the, the only take home point I would take from that is, is not, ha. Oh, no need for medication, bro, just going to train. That's not what I would say. Rather, what I would say is that, you know, exercise can be really potent. So if you are relaying this this on, this information to your clients, uh, to family members, to friends, I would encourage them to engage in exercise if they do have high blood pressure, um, rather than saying, you know, come off your meds, <laughs> come squatting with me, you know. <laughs> yeah, the, I always think of it like, you should think of it more as uh, generally, almost universally accepted adjunct to whatever therapy someone is already on you know yeah. or if they're in the the lower stages like again like they went to their doctor and it was like oh you're just kind of tipping into that higher range it's like like we don't need to put you on any medication but again you want to look at some healthier habits healthier exercise you know whatever um then again like the, it should be almost a, a frontline or a first target a first intervention for most people, see if it works, see how you get on. Again, if you are trying to be more preventative in your approach, because generally people who are listening to this as individuals are probably trying to be more preventative. They're like, you know, what can I do so I don't have high blood pressure? I don't have issues. Again, just engage in all modalities of exercise. If you do train someone or you know of someone, a family member, whatever, that has higher blood pressure, again, exercise is not a removal of medication it's not like get rid of all that shit throw it flush it down the toilet it's like no let's bring this in as an adjunct let's add it on to your current uh drug regime or drug regimen and uh then see how you get on see if there's favorable adaptations if there is happy days and we will continue to progress that and keep getting results you know eventually you may excuse me you can't even talk um, eventually you may be able to get off drugs unreal that's great you know but again that might not be the case for everyone like you might have to just be on a lower dose of some sort of you know blood pressure medication for the rest of your life you know and again it's that pesky genetics thing it's the pesky epigenetics thing it's the pesky environment thing like all of that stuff plays in and it's just unfortunate like you might just be at an increased risk no matter what you do and it might not even be genetics it might not even be like heritable in your family like no one else in your family has high blood pressure but like in utero in the womb like you were just exposed to higher amounts of stress and epigenetically you just had a a, like a higher set point for that and as a result you just have higher blood pressure throughout your whole life you know so like there's not much you can do about that like yeah obviously there is much you can do about it you can still engage in all these healthy habits and you know healthy behaviors and all the stuff we're talking about in this episode and the the last episode and potentially the next episode (laughs) um but you know you can engage in all those things but that's no guarantee that 
you will just be immune because you see this all the time people will be like oh this person had a heart attack and you know they they did all the healthy things they did like they were doing their marathon running they were doing their you know healthy eating they were vegan or they are whatever and they still had a heart attack and it's like yeah like just because you do all the right things doesn't mean you're immune from all the bad things yeah. you know like again it, yeah it's still your responsibility to take care of all these things but it's not your fault if you know misfortune you know puts its eye on you so again you can still have shit luck in life even if you do all the right things and it's just unfortunate it's unfair but it is the way life is yeah no that that is really important because i think there is a bit of uh there's somewhat of what would you call it like there's medication shaming to some degree in the fitness industry and i, I don't think it's i don't think it's it's very direct in that like there's not there are lots there are there are lots of people like, that's wrong. There are lots of people who do say, who do are very, you know, abrupt in saying that, oh, no, we want to, you know, get you off medication. You don't want to have to touch those drugs. And because people have kind of heard these echoes about like bad, big pharma and bad pharma and stuff like that. And, and obviously there's valid concerns there. Um, but I think there is this kind of medication shaming idea where people are just like, if they're involved in health and fitness, especially if they're a personal trainer, if their client, you know, has some sort of problem, their kind of desire is to try and find, you know, some way through nutrition and exercise that we can get rid of that problem. And obviously like that is like, that is a valid approach and that, that works in many cases, but in many cases it doesn't. And what you do have to realize is that, you know, if you are, you know, shaming people for taking medication, or if you're someone who feels like it's, you are, you are inferior because you take a blood pressure medication, what you have to realize is that like these medications are, reducing your risk of dying and ultimately that should be more important so um when we're trying to you know conceptualize health for ourselves for our clients for our friends and family it, it, it is ultimately all about decision making that's going to improve this person's quality or quantity of life and obviously cost features within that decision making process etc um and yeah basically don't just uh, tell people that they should get off their meds because something is superior because very often medication can be very very effective yeah, it's kind of like that naturalistic fallacy be like oh well you should be able to you know in nature in the wild humans never needed blood pressure medication and whatever and it's like yeah okay cool you can go live in the wild if you want but i actually yeah, don't right. live in the wild yep um so yeah believe it or not people did actually die um before the, the last century people they actually did. lived forever gary that's a complete <laughs> that's a big pharma you know lie that they, they perpetuate through the industry when in reality there's actually a lot of immortals walking among us <laughs> uh but yeah it's also what i ever understand about this big pharma yeah. argument or whatever i'm like if you think you have insider knowledge where you're like big pharma are making money hand over fist and you know they're they're making everyone unhealthy and sick just so they can make more money i'm like okay if you believe that to be the case then just invest in that company because if you can yeah. say you're like at least I'm, I'm i'm not going to be healthy at least you can be wealthy right yeah. so uh, if you think they're making money hand over fist then just be like all right what company makes this drug all right i'm just going to invest in that company boom all of a sudden you're like yeah everyone's unhealthy but at least i have a million dollars in the bank so i can get the best you know medical care that i could potentially get you know there you go. Um, but yeah, no, like the, the, the kind of the, the pharma stuff is always an interesting conversation because it's kind of like, it's just such a typical example of people like wanting to have a camp because you, you see this on both sides, you know, you see people who will be, you know, militant against pharmaceuticals and drugs at all costs. Um, and maybe they're, but they're, they're on trend. Yeah. But they're on trend, <laughs> but they're, but they're, you know, their concerns may have come from a very valid place in that there may have been some corruption in a particular study or the development of a particular drug or something like that and and basically you just take that that example and generalize it to all medication assume that there's no use which which is just a dumb way of looking at the world there's there's not very much critical thinking involved in that but also on the opposite side of the coin because like a uh, like because I'm a trainer and someone who's studying medicine, I'm like, well, I've got a horse in both races. So, I mean, I can just think what I want to. So like on the opposite side of the coin, when I follow some doctors, like, and, and you see the way that they engage online on, on Twitter and stuff, like their level of analysis is, is not much more sophisticated than the individual who just thinks pharma bad because they just think, 
uh, pharma good, you know, and that's and that's kind of it. And if they see a study related to nutrition um, or something like that, they'll be like, oh, this is just kind of dumb quackery, you know, like these are not, not real effects or they'll just brush away uh, lots of problems related to that. And 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 from my perspective, like I'm just like both levels of reasoning um, are false. And, and yeah, just because you have letters before or after your name does not make you an intelligent individual. Like I always think of this, people put a load of stock into like, oh, a doctor said this, when in reality, like, it doesn't really matter. Because like, if we just started having, you know, tradesmen, if they were able to push, I don't know, T or D or something in front of their name, like, would we take their opinion on topics differently? Like, just because you put letters in front of your name doesn't mean anything, you know? Um, like, all you did was, oh, yeah, I went to college for whatever, nine years. Like, a tradesman, you know, has been doing his trade for nine years. So are we saying that because you got a PhD doctorate in something that you can just have all these wild opinions and it might be tangentially related to your field because you're like, yeah, I'm talking about something that I'm not actually a doctor of, but because I have DRE or Dior in front of my name, I can, I can put my opinion on it and people will listen to it. It's like, these, these are not infallible, infallible humans. They're just humans. Again, like, as we said previously, just think of everyone like they're a pedophile, like this person that you're reading information about or reading information from, they could be a pedophile. They could beat their wife. They could do whatever the fuck, you know? So again, they're not infallible humans. You should always question the the information presented for you, in, including this podcast. Yep. Um, not to make our podcast disagreeable or anything, but like one of the the, the examples that that has come up in this in this space recently has been I've seen some doctors basically allow their political, you could say, biases to totally override any reasoning abilities they actually have within their own field. In that, people have started to discuss public health problems about you know the coronavirus and the COVID-19 pandemic and they've started saying things things like literally as explicit as this that systemic systemic uh systemic racism and racism in general and the genocide of black people is far more of a virus and a pandemic than the COVID-19 pandemic like and to me like that is just such an unbelievably ridiculous statement to make amidst an actual pandemic that, you know, like, obviously we can be sympathetic to all of the, the valid concerns that people have, but like that, that's just like insane, In, insane. There's, there's no last, last week. It was stay at home or you're killing your granny. Now yeah. you see people like, Oh yeah, you should be out protesting where social distancing is impossible, you know, and doctors and stuff are, you know, agreeing with that. Now, again, I actually fucking personally, I'm like, I think everyone should have the right to protest whatever yeah, fucking absolutely. issue they want. Like, we should have freedom of speech if you want to fucking go out there and shout anything. And especially if it's a cause that, you know, I think most people would genuinely or generally agree with. You yeah. know, I'm like, happy days, fucking go out and protest. But I don't like this move where health professionals just have their political bias and say, oh yeah, 100%. it was, it was not good. You, 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 you should not have gone out. Um, if you were going out previously, it was just because you wanted a haircut, you know, and you know, you trying to protest to have your business open, you know, that was, you were killing your granny. But if you go out and pre protest something else, then, oh, we're, we're hundred percent behind it, you know? But again, that's just the two of our political opinions and you know, what the fuck do we know? So, it's irrelevant to the people listening to this, uh, what we care about. Because again, as I said, you just have to treat everyone as if they're a pedophile, you know? So our opinions are useless for informing your opinions. You take from our information, our podcast, our writings, whatever, whatever you need to get better results with your clients or yourself, you know? That's all. That's all you should take from them. So you shouldn't, like anyone who puts out information, if they are the most ardent I know right winger and then they're the most ardent over here communist i'm like if they put out good information about stuff that you want to learn about then take that information forget about all the useless information in your opinion and just you know listen to what you need to listen to to get better results with either yourself or your clients yep 100 percent. and yeah i'm just expressing my disappointment because that's that's kind of what you, what you want and what you expect from people and when you see public health professionals and doctors who you've respected for being so objective on situations that would, you know, could be potentially very emotional, suddenly allowing all of that reasoning to, to go out, the, out, go out the window. Just upsets me, Patty. That's all. Just upsets me.
yeah, I just don't understand again. Like, you, you weren't allowed to go to funerals. Like, people have died, and you're not allowed to go to their funerals. Your your own family, but you're allowed protest. Like that, in my mind, I'm like that's that's a reversal of where things should be. But anyway, look, that's irrelevant. Um, <laughs> so, Gary, where can people find us? What products, services do we offer? Do the whole spiel, and we'll wrap this up. So, um, as always, guys, you can subscribe to the Triage Method newsletter um, below, and that's where you will find out more uh, about the content that we are producing. Um, you know, we're always writing new content, and that's basically where we will be uh, delivering that content a lot of the time. So, yeah, get on that. What you'll also would want to do is if you're interested in this podcast and you're interested in the delivery of information uh, related to uh, personal training, you know, working with clients, trying to apply all this stuff uh, practically, we'd recommend pre-registering your interest uh, for the Coaches Corner, which is a service that we'll be launching soon. Um, and that's basically going to be, you know, a membership site that is dedicated towards giving you basically a lot of the tools for the toolbox and also the knowledge to support that to be a better coach. And, you know, if you're an interested trainee, you can apply all that information for yourself too. So um, get on that. You will also receive a discount uh, when you do pre-register your interest. So you can get on that below. Um, furthermore, say, just, just on that, like if you're looking for, you're like, oh, well, what are the exact protocols I should do with blood pressure and all that kind of stuff? Like what we want to have in there is case studies of stuff like this. So it's like, you know, these are, these are the interventions that could potentially, you know, lead to better resolution of issues, you know? And that's, that's what we want to have in the Coach's Corner, an entire section to just case studies. Because I know seeing this stuff in front of you and actually having some sort of map for it like that's really beneficial and it's something that like people just don't do in we'll call it health and fitness education i'm like i want to see case studies i like whatever it's great and like obviously we like writing about that and providing it like that kind of theoretical background knowledge so you have a better understanding because again i do believe that you know education is the the great equalizer and i think personally I'm, i've the opinion that it should be free because i'm like well, it's literally just information you know charging for information is Know, somewhat archaic in my mind however charging for the the actual protocols and the actual knowledge that an individual has i'm like yeah okay cool i'll pay for that and again that's what we want to have in the the coach's corner where it's like here's the exact protocols that you can use you know it's not just this theoretical information that you know you could get somewhere else online you can go on wikipedia and look up blood pressure and it's like cool i got lots of information there that you know potentially is actionable you know I want to cut out that middle step and be like, look, this here's all the free information. Cool. There you can have that for free. But when we actually put this into action, what are the exact protocols we use? What are the exact interventions? How do you, you know, analyze the data that's presented to you? You know, that that sort of stuff. I'm like, yeah, cool. Get in the coach's coach's corner for that. And that's where you'll see all that information that will help you be a better coach. Yes, sir. And if you'd like to work with us. You know, in, for your own goals, you know, as a in, in a coaching capacity, we do have online coaching spaces available. So we, we're still running the one-to-one -one online coaching and group online coaching. So you can get involved with those services below. Um, and other than that, just make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube. That would be the best place for you to get involved because when you subscribe on YouTube, you help others find our videos and you also make sure that you're keeping up to date with the videos that we are posting um and, and now we are posting a lot more videos in terms yeah. of like we're doing videos for our articles well i am now gary has other projects at the moment he'll get on those later on um but posting videos for our articles because i know a lot of people don't want to sit down and read an article but they still want the the general gist of the information so having those videos you can play them in the background. You can literally watch them. Like I obviously go through some stuff on the actual slides that we have on them. But uh, yeah, so YouTube is the the place to be. 100%. And other than that, Instagram, Facebook, get involved. Most importantly, Facebook Triage Method Community is our private Facebook group. And that's you can get involved in different conversations you know that we're having when people ask questions and we pose questions and we share posts etc so would recommend but other than that don't have anything else to say really other than the fact that it is in fact too easy it literally is nice